Scripture says to us that your bodies are a what? What's the word? A temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the point of that? What's the author of Scripture saying? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It means that in the same way that the kabod, the glory, the presence of God was in the tabernacle, and then it was in the holy of holies in the temple, now he means to reside with you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the new holy of holies. You are the new mercy seat, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what God in Christ has done for you. Welcome to the weekly sermon at Gateway. My name is Jason McNabb. The story of King David is a remarkable testimony of God's faithfulness to his people Israel. His life and faith journey point us to Christ, who is the promised king that would surpass David and save his people. You can find more information about this series at gatewaycrc.org. And now, here's this week's message. Good morning. My name is Jeff Kears. I've been at Gateway for about 17 and a half years and I serve in the music ministry with the worship team. Our reading this morning is from 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 to 13. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am, living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it. For the Lord is with you. But that night the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I have not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I have been moving from place to place with a, with a tent as my dwelling. Wherever I have moved with all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of the rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all, all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men of the earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home in their own, of their own, and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore, as they did at the beginning, and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you when your days are over and your rest with your, when you rest with your ancestors. I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish a throne of his kingdom forever. This is the word of the Lord. 
Well, friends, we finally made it. After 17 weeks, we have finally arrived at the culminating passage of Scripture that this entire series, these two books, are all about. As you know, we've entitled the series Shadow King, and I have shared with you that this story is in your Bible, not pointing to Saul, not pointing to David, but pointing to someone greater. I shared with you that we would see someone that the Bible calls the anointed one, the Messiah, the giant slayer, the friend, the king, but it's not David that we're going to see. It is the one to whom David points, someone greater, that a thousand years later, all the promises of scripture from Genesis all the way through 2 Samuel chapter 7 and beyond, it is pointing to one central character, and hopefully, if we have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, we're going to see it with greater color, with greater texture and clarity, the person of Jesus. And I want you to see that uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7, many scholars say that this is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible for the way that it stretches back to the fulfilled promises of God all the way since Genesis chapter 3 when God says to the serpent that the seed of Eve will crush the head of the serpent and the serpent will bite his heel. That is fulfilled in Jesus and then fulfilling forward when we anticipate the one who will make all things new and they will call him the son of David, the anointed one, the giant slayer, the friend, the king. And so as we look at this story today, I hope that we can see it with gospel hope that we can see the one to whom this story points, that we see Jesus in this story even 930 years before he arrives on planet Earth. And so that's what I, I hope for us today. And so chapter 7 opens, and David, he has finally established himself as the king of Israel. He has put the Philistines in their place. He has brought unity between the northern and the southern tribes of Israel. He now has a capital city in Jerusalem, and he is enjoying peace. And the entire nation of Israel is established in peace and in economic prosperity. And God has brought in, through his servant David, the the Ark of God, the Ark of the Covenant, all of these things have now been fulfilled. But we also see that David is not like his predecessor Saul. Saul, he was so consumed with himself. He was always looking around, how do the people see me? How do other people see me? Filled with pride. And yet David, he has a heart after God. He sees himself not as the king of kings, but as a vice regent to the king, to God most high. He sees himself as a pencil in the hands of a poet, as a paintbrush in the hands of a beautiful painter. He is being used by God for his purposes. In fact, most biblical scholars believe that David is the author of Psalm 93, which goes like this. The Lord is, what's the word? Help me. 
The king, the Lord is the king, says David. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and armed with strength. Indeed, the world is established, firm and secure. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. And so David, he has this heart posture where he says, I'm just a vice regent. I'm a servant in God's hands. I'm just a vessel. I am the king here on earth, but I am not my own king. I'm a servant of the king. King of kings, the Lord of lords, he is king. And that's, that's the posture of his heart. And then already in verse 2, we are introduced to a new character, and that is Nathan. He's the new prophet who succeeds Samuel. He's Israel's pastor. And the way that I picture this in my mind, this is not in the text, but here's how I picture it. David, he's just established his new kingdom. He has a new throne, and with that, he built a new house for himself. And they're probably at some point off in the palace, maybe in the back deck, in the patio, the balcony. They're sitting there. I'm, I'm thinking they're enjoying a good bourbon at the time, but again, not in the text. They're just sitting there, and they're looking at Israel. They're looking across, and, and David is seeing the peace and the prosperity of Israel. And then his eyes drift down toward the tabernacle. And it is a shabby mess. We know that the tabernacle was essentially just like a, a tent for the Ark of God, for the Ark of the Covenant. And the people of Israel, they made it all the way back when they were in the wilderness. So this is at least a few hundred years old. How many of you have um, tent trailers and then you have like little tarps that you put over your tent trailer? How many of you got that? Julie and I have that. We've owned it for a year and it looks like garbage already. Could you imagine having a tent for 300 years? Like it is shabby. So he's, he's feeling some guilt at this point. He's like, here I am living in this beautiful palace with huge hallways, beautiful balconies. Here's what he says in verse 2. He says, next slide please. Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Cedar wood, by the way, was considered a luxury, not unlike still it is today. And David essentially says, how is it fair that here I am, I'm flying first class, and God, he's in coach with Flair Airlines. If you know, you know, right? It's like, it's not working out. We gotta give God an upgrade. We gotta help God out. And that, that's the heart of David. And Nathan responds the way that pretty much every pastor responds when a rich person says, I wanna make a monetary donation to the kingdom of God. He goes, let me think about it, yes. He says this in verse three. Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. Pastors love moments like this. Ask any pastor, the vast majority of the conversations that we have with people is that someone needs something from God and they need help to get it. Now, don't get me wrong. This is something that every single pastor, pastor appreciates and loves, to walk with God's people. There is no greater, more honest stance that we can take than here I am, Lord, I need you. Almost every psalm is, Lord, I need you. Palms open, nothing in our hands. Help me, Lord Jesus. Come to my aid. Give me what I need. And so the majority of conversations that pastors share is, pastor, my cancer's back. What do I do? 
my marriage is on the rocks. How do I fix this? I'm, I'm struggling with sin. I'm struggling in my finances. I've, I've lost my job. My, my teenage kids, they're, they're, they're petulant, and I don't know how to deal with this. My life isn't turning out the way that I had hoped. It's dealing with, with uncertainty and failures and, and dashed hopes and dreams. These are the types of conversations that we typically walk into. But sometimes we'll have a conversation with someone who's just so excited to make a contribution. It's rare, but it happens. Someone says, Pastor, I see a need in this community, and I want to start a ministry to meet it. We're like, go. You know, or Pastor, I've been tithing my income, but I want to tithe my business. How do I do that? Or Pastor, I've been serving in this way, but I feel the Lord is really putting it in my heart to serve even more frequently and help even more. Usually pastors are like, uh, yeah, okay, yeah, I talked to God in that last half second. Go do it. And that's, that's what Nathan is doing. He says, I don't need time to think about this. I don't need time to pray about it. Typically when pastors hear this, they're instantly uncritical. They're just like, go do it. God bless you. And so Nathan responds this way. But that night, Nathan receives a vision from God while he's sleeping. And here's the essence of it. He says, say to David, I appreciate the sentiment, but have I ever asked you or anyone to build me a house? Did I ask the people of Israel when they were in the wilderness? Did I ask anyone since you came to the land of promise, since you came to Israel? David, have I ever asked this of you? And then here's what he does. I hope we have the eyes to see this. Right on the heels of this correction, he shares the gospel message a thousand years before Jesus shows up on the scene. Here's what this chapter is all about. At its core, Christianity is not, it's not as much about giving to God or, or doing great things for God. The heart of Christianity is what God, through Christ, has done for you. That's the essence of the gospel. And so here's the way that I put it in your note sheet. Here's the plain main thing. Religion is spelled D-O. But the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. Done. And this is something that we need to remind ourselves, whether, whether you're a Christian who's been following Jesus for decades, or you're still on the fence about Jesus, and you're like, I, I don't know if I should trust in him and put my faith in him. Every single person needs to come to terms with this reality that the gospel is done through Jesus by grace through faith in Christ, period. That's it. And for some of us, it's a comfort because we can now come before the Lord with our palms open like we talked about already. But for other of us, it's a challenge because it means we have to die to our own ego and our own pride and our own sense of self-accomplishment. We have to die to those things. And like the Apostle Paul says, we have to treat them like filthy rags before Jesus. We have to give that up. And again, this story is in your Bible for you to see with greater color and texture and clarity the person of Jesus. 
and what he has come to do. So let's, let's see how this all happens. Uh, look at your Bible. Look at verse 8. It starts off with David says, I want to go build a house for God. And God says, you don't get it. You still don't get it, David. I'm the one who is the actor in this story. I'm the one who's going to do a good thing. And so he says this, verse 8, I took you from the pasture that you should be prince over my people. Verse 9, I've been with you wherever you go, wherever you went. Verse 9 again, I have cut off before you all of your enemies. Verse 9, I will make for you a great name. Verse 10, I will appoint for my people and for you, David, a place Israel will plant them. Verse 11, I will give you rest from all of your enemies. Verse 11, I, the Lord, will make you a house. On and on and on and on again. I will make, I will do, I will take care of, I will do. This is the heart of God. I'm the actor. I'm the one who's doing a good thing in this, David. So I appreciate the sentiment, but we have to make sure that we have our motives in the right place. That God is the primary actor, the only actor with respect to salvation and the good work that he is doing. The gospel teaches us that our acceptance is given to us as a gift. God has done the work and ours is to believe and to receive. And then when we ask that question, because this is what the book of James ultimately is all about in, in your Bible, what becomes of good works? What becomes of good deeds? The answer is that obedience is a byproduct or it is the fruit of our faith. That God is the one who's doing the good work. And now in grateful obedience, we say, Lord, I want to walk with you. I want to make much of you. I want to do these good deeds, not to earn salvation, but because I love you with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. That's my motivation. And so then God shows us how he's going to do this. This is verse 12. This is the quintessential verse in all of chapter 7. So if 2 Samuel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible, then 2 Samuel 7 verse 12 is the critical verse within that chapter. And it says this, when your days are over, he's talking to David, and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. Now, here's the question. Who's God talking about? Is he talking about David's son Solomon? Or is he talking about Jesus? Yes, it's a trick question because the answer is yes. It is a double fulfillment. Both of these characters fulfill this story, Solomon in part, but Jesus in the whole. And then we see throughout history, even though the people of Israel at this time didn't have the eyes to see, we can now see it with clarity. Solomon com comes along, and he will build the temple that David wanted to build. And under Solomon... David's kingdom is greater and more beautiful and more vibrant than it was ever was under Saul or David, and it ever will be again under any other king until Jesus comes. This is the high watermark for the people of Israel. And yet, if you know your Bible, you know that just like David, Solomon is going to royally mess up his life. 
First, he's going to marry 700 wives and concubines, even though scripture clearly says that the king of Israel should be married to one wife. And then after that, he starts worshiping false gods and idols that uh, his wives and concubines bring in. He makes a mess of his life. And so he is not the climax of the story. When we talk about the kingdom of God being established through the son of David, it's not Solomon. It's Jesus. And that's the reason why I shared with you all the way back in week two, Jesus is never called the son of Moses. He's never called the son of Abraham, but he is more than a hundred times in your Bible called the son of David because he is the culminating fulfillment of 2 Samuel 7 verse 12. He is the son of David. He is the one who will make all things new. He is the one who will establish his kingdom, which will rule and reign for all of eternity. Praise be to God. He is the fulfillment of this. And so that's what we can see within this story, more, uh, just under a thousand years before these events take place. And so the question I think that we have to ask of ourselves is, how will God do this? How does he fulfill this promise that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this? And there's three things I want us to look at. Here's the first one. Number one, Jesus is our true temple. He's our true temple. Jesus isn't someone who just will build a temple. He will become the embodiment of the temple or of the tabernacle. Uh, it's interesting. John chapter 1 verse 14 says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's really interesting. That word dwelt or to dwell in Greek literally means tabernacle. Did you know that? So the most literal translation of John chapter 1 verse 14 is the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. What does that mean? Well, what was the purpose of the tabernacle? That's where the kabod, the glory of God, would dwell with his people. And then under Solomon, the temple comes along. What's in the holy of holies? The kabod, the glory, the presence of God. And then Jesus comes along and he is the fulfillment of those things. Which is why he says crazy stuff. Like at one point he says, if you tear down the temple, I will rebuild it in three days. And everyone's like, uh, Jesus, I'm not sure if you know this, but it took Solomon 40 years to build the temple with hundreds of master tradespeople. How can you rebuild it in three days? And then later we see it. Jesus Christ, the temple, dies on the cross the temple is destroyed, and then in three days it is rebuilt when he is resurrected. Who's the temple? Jesus is saying, I am. I am the temple. And then here's what's so cool. Here's what's so amazing. What happens at Pentecost? The Holy Spirit comes down, and it descends upon believers. And do you remember what the image was? It was fire. Now, what was over the Holy of Holies? What was over the mercy seat of the tabernacle? Fire, And so here's the ultimate culminating moment. This is what you have to see. Justin, tabernacle, temple, like what's going on? What's the point? Here's the plain main thing. Jesus means to abide with his people. See, most of us, we settle for a cheap knockoff of Christianity, which goes a little bit like this. God, I want to live a good life so that I can go to heaven one day. That's good enough for me. And God says, no. 
I want to be with you. I want to abide with you. I want you to be in my presence. I want us to have relationship with each other, which is why uh, Scripture says to us that your bodies are a what? What's the word? A temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the point of that? What's the author of Scripture saying? Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. It means that in the same way that the kabod, the glory, the presence of God was in the tabernacle, and then it was in the Holy of Holies in the temple, now he means to reside with you. With you. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the new Holy of Holies. You are the new mercy seat. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what God in Christ has done for you. Because he wants to abide with his people. He wants to be in their presence. He wants to love you with his whole heart. And here's the second thing. We also see that Jesus is our true king. He's our true king. What does it mean to say that Jesus is our king? I think this is the part of the gospel that we have a lot of trouble with. I think we struggle with this one. Because Jesus didn't just come to us as our savior, though he did, he also comes as the ultimate authority of our lives. And what that means is there's no such thing as a Christian who says, I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and savior, but he isn't yet the ultimate authority of my life. You cannot bifurcate Jesus. You cannot say, you know, I want a little bit of this, a little bit of that. If you have not accepted Jesus as your king, then you still have not accepted Jesus as your savior. You can't splice those things. Because at the end of the day, if that is your perspective, then Jesus isn't your Lord. You are. You are. You're still calling the shots. You're still the ultimate authority of your life. You're still the one who says, I'm going to have my way. I'm going to do the things that I want. Who is the Lord of the universe? Are you or is Jesus? Who is the king who rules and reigns? And I think most of us, once again, we, we settle for a cheap knockoff of Christianity where Jesus is your mentor, he's your guide, he's your friend, he's your life coach. He might even be your really, 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 really well-respected consultant, but he is not your Lord. You are. He is not your king. You are. And this is one of the areas that we have to really grapple with. Is Jesus who he says he is? Is he the Lord of the universe? If he is, then he must be Lord of your soul. He has to be Lord of your heart. And we have to come before the Lord and say, God, you are God, I am not. You are Lord, I am not. And so the way I want to orient my life is to say, all that I have, all that I am, I'm yours. My job, my finances, my time, my marriage, my sexuality, how I use my time, everything, it's yours. The way I want to posture my life, Lord Jesus, is take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in endless praise. Lord, use me as your vessel. I am yours. I am a paintbrush in the hands of a beautiful painter. I am a pencil in the hands of a beautiful poet. You are the one who is doing something great, not me. I want to die to myself and I want to lift high the name of Jesus. Lord, use me. Use me. 
And I, again, I'm not trying to offend anyone here unnecessarily. I'm just saying so many times in our life, we settle for something less when God wants to give us something more. And is it possible, friends, that's the reason why you've been following Jesus and there's still no joy? You're wondering to yourself, where's the joy? And God is saying to you, it's because you still haven't made me the Lord of your life. You still haven't given me the steering wheel of your life. You are still in control. And that's, that's the reason why there's no joy. Come to me. Come to me. And so that's the offense. But, but here's what I also find really interesting about this. If we can go past the offensiveness of Jesus being our Lord and say, Lord, you are the king, I am not, then a great comfort comes in that. We sang about that this morning. What did we sing? He reigns. He reigns. Jesus reigns. I think there's an incredible comfort in that because when we know that Jesus Christ reigns supreme over the universe and we know his motives, what does scripture say about the motives of God? He will work out all things together for his glory and for your good. For your good, that doesn't mean he's going to whitewash your life and everything's going to be smooth sailing. It just means we have the perspective in knowing that ultimately it will bring about my good, my joy, my ultimate fulfillment if I lay all this down before the Lord. And so here's what this means, friends. It means God reigns. Over your sickness, God reigns. Over a cancer diagnosis, God reigns. Over better bitterness and for unforgiveness in your heart, God reigns. Over national wars in Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Palestine, God reigns. It means over every area of your life, God reigns. And here's the question, do you believe that? Do you believe that God reigns supreme? If you do, here's what's going to happen. You are going to have such incredible gospel hope even in the midst of those difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean those things are not going to be painful or difficult. It just means you are going to know how the story ultimately ends. And so you are not going to be angsty at the bottom of the ninth when you're losing the game. It doesn't, it just means you are going to have gospel hope in the midst of those things. And so here's the third thing that we need to see in this. We see that Jesus is our true temple, he is our true king, and he is also our true savior. Look back at your text with me. Uh, I find it really interesting that David decided to build a temple for God and God said no. Reason for that is, um, you might consider writing this down and looking at the context later. Deuteronomy chapter 12, God gives specific instructions to the people of Israel, and he says, eventually, I want you to build me a temple. And God even tells the people of Israel when this should occur. He says, when I bring peace on all sides, and there's no more warring from your enemies, that is the moment that you need to build the temple. And so here's David. 
David's like, well, we took care of the, um, we took care of the Babylonians. Um, we, we took care of all the enemies on all sides. And on account of that, it, it's probably time to build the temple. And God says no to him. Why? It's not because it was the wrong thing. It's because the motives were not pure. And God wanted to use this as an example to remind both David and Israel and anyone who ever reads 2 Samuel chapter 7 that God will do this. Not David. God will do this. He chooses to highlight the gospel in this way. So why did God say no? In a word, the answer is grace. God's grace. God uses this moment to reveal to David and everyone else who will ever read this book that the kingdom of God is not something that you can earn. It's not something you can do for God. It is something that God has already done for us through Jesus. That's the, the reason. And I think this is probably one of the most difficult lessons to learn with respect to our faith as Christians. Recognizing that we come to God with empty hands. And like I said to you, this is the reason why Paul says, even my good deeds, I consider them to be like filthy rags before the Lord. Why is that so difficult? Because of one word, pride. Our pride. I shared with you that the theme of the entire book of First and Second Samuel can be summarized as this. God humbles the proud and he exalts the humble. The difference I shared with you between Saul and David is not their moral track record because if you're following along, by the end of the story, you're going to be convinced that Saul was far more moral than David. David is on the precipice, we're going to see it in the next few weeks, on the cusp of making a royal mess of his life. Screwing everything up, messing up all the problems. Like it's going to be a huge, huge problem what he's about to do. And yet what's the difference between David and Saul. The difference is one thing, the humility of their hearts, their heart posture before the Lord. That David has a heart that says, I am like a beggar God. I come before you with nothing. I need your grace. I need your grace. I need your grace. That's the difference between a religious person and a Christian, by the way. A Christian is someone who says, God, I need you. Every hour I need you. And a religious person is, God grades on a curve, and I'm pretty sure I'm more moral than other people, and I'm going to get in. That's the difference. And we have to choose how we're going to orient our lives. It's really interesting. Um, there was a man named Christian Smith, and he devoted a, a good number of years trying to understand the essence of lived-out Christianity among young people. And uh, he conducted 3,000 interviews with youth in America, and I, I think even though this was in 2004 and in the U.S., it applies for us today perhaps even more so. I think this, what, what he has discovered has just been exasperated more than anything else. But just so you know, 2004 in the U.S., 3,000 interviews with young people trying to get a sense, what is Christianity to you? And he coined a new term. He called it moralistic therapeutic deism. That was the essence of Christianity in America. And he's, these are his findings. Four things. What is our purpose in life? The vast majority of young people who were interviewed, they would say something like this. Well, the goal of my life is to enjoy my own life and to be happy, to pursue my own pleasures. 
And then what is your relationship with God? Well, God, he doesn't really need to be that involved in my life. That's not super important, but he will be there to help me in a bind. So once again, he's kind of like Aladdin's genie. I can rub that bottle. God will pop out and he'll say, I got a problem. Can you fix it? And then with respect to our salvation, the, the belief of these young people was good people go to heaven when they die. And if that's the case, then the question about motive is this. I need to do good things. I need to do moral things. And the dangling carrot to do good is I get to go to heaven one day. Listen, that's not the gospel. That's Pearl Jam. Anyone know Pearl Jam? You know the song what I'm about to sing? I'm going to sing. Maybe some of you sing with, where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's gone to heaven, so I got to be good. Why? So I can see my baby when I leave this world. That's the motivating factor. No, no applause for my beautiful singing. Didn't I just do such a great job? Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> so that's not the gospel, friends. That's not the gospel. And yet, I think oftentimes that's the way that we view it. Like, why should I do good things? Why should I be moral? Well, heaven's out there. It's dangling away. That, that's what I got to do. That's how I have to live my life. Parts of that sound really good, but it's anti-gospel. And I wonder, I wonder, if David is caught up in this. He's thinking to himself, I better do some good things for God. So let me share with you the gospel according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It goes like this. With respect to our purpose, the central goal of our life is to glorify God. Westminster Catechism question and answer one goes like this. What is the chief end of humanity? To glorify God. That's another word for worship and to enjoy him forever. That is the purpose of our lives. With respect to our relationship with God, God means to dwell with his people. We saw that already. Your bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. God means to dwell with you, to abide with you, to know you, for you to walk in his presence, to have a meaningful relationship with him. That's what God wants for his people. With respect to salvation, we say it is by grace, through faith, in Christ, in his finished work on the cross, big fat period at the end, you can't earn your salvation, Christ has already done it for you, and then what's our motivation? Obedience is to be the fruit of our faith, the fruit of it, that's how we live out the Shema, that's how we live out our faithfulness, I want to love you God with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, all my strength, because you've already done it all. You've paid the price for all my sins. That is the new motivation of our hearts. Do you see the difference between these two things? And it just grieves my heart that I think the vast majority of Christians in the U.S. and Canada live here. Right here. And yet God says, this is what you need to see. This is the message of hope that we need to live into. And I think what makes this really difficult when the rubber hits the road is what that means is it's not just our sins that could keep us from God. Is it possible, friends, that our very good deeds that we do could be keeping us away from God's presence? Keeping us from running from God. It's not so much 
the sins that we commit as it is our fundamental belief that I can earn this. And so what we have to reorient our hearts with is to say the proper posture to come before God is like a beggar. God, I need you. Let me share a story. This is a a real story with um, a, a gentleman who I pastored in my previous congregation. He was an amazing person. He was a leader in the church. He served faithfully. He tithed his income and his business. In every area of his life, he was trying to be moral and upright. And then one day he was diagnosed with cancer. And he was so angry with God. And over the course of the next four months, we began to unpack together some of the reasons why he was so angry. And one of the things that came out in those conversations is he said, I always thought if I did these good things that God would bless my life. And I'm so angry with him that he diagnosed me with cancer and he took that away even though I've done all these good things. And I use this as an example, friends, to show you once again just how self-deceptive the heart can be. That oftentimes, even in our own good deeds, we have an expectation that God will bless our life. That God will give us something. And yet God is saying, you cannot moralize your, your way into eternity, into heaven with me. And so he had to repent of those things. And by God's grace, here's, here's how his story ended. And he's a, he's a beautiful friend, and now he's in glory. He eventually beat cancer. He eventually beat it. And we walked together for a number of years. And only last year he got cancer again. And now he's in glory with Jesus. But the one thing he was able to learn in time is that moralism does not get you into eternity. Moralism is another way to run from God, not to follow God in his presence. And I wonder if some of us here need to repent of those things too. Is it possible that some of us here are using even our own good deeds to run from God? So let's look at how David responds to this incredible message of God's grace. Pick up with me at verse 18. It says this. Then King David went in and sat Circle, highlight, underline. How did it start? He wants to go. He wants to do. But now he sits before the Lord. And he said this. Who am I, sovereign Lord? What is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of the house of your servant. And this decree, sovereign Lord, is for a mere human for what more can David say to you? For you know that your servant, sovereign, you know your servant, sovereign Lord. For the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing. Circle, highlight, underline, and made it known to your servant how great you are, sovereign Lord. There is none like you. There is no God but you. And we have heard with our own ears. And who is like your people, Israel? The one nation on earth that God went out to redeem as a people for himself. Paul says, we. We are the Israel of God, dear Christians. 
You are promised in this story too. And to make a name for himself and to perform great and awesome wonders by driving out nations and their gods from before your people whom you redeemed from Egypt. You have established your people Israel as your very own forever and you, Lord, have become their God. And now, Lord God, keep forever the promise you have made concerning your servant and his house. Do as you promised so that your name will be great forever. Then people will say, the Lord Almighty is God over Israel and the house of your servant David will be established in your sight. And when Jesus shows up, he is called the son of David and he established his kingdom for all of eternity. For all of eternity. So, I asked you at the beginning, what's the plain main thing? I shared with you, religion is spelled D-O, and the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. And that is the essence of this whole chapter. And so to close this morning, I want us to look at one particular verse that I think is the culminating moment where we see Jesus most clearly, and that is verse 14. So if you got your Bibles, look at verse 14. God says this to David. He says, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Now, let's, let's stop there for a second. Is this Solomon, or is it Jesus? You look at that, and you go, mm, I think it's probably both, right? It sounds like both. And we say, when he does wrong, well, hold on a second. Jesus hasn't ever done anything wrong, right? So if, maybe it's Solomon in that specific instance. When he does wrong, but then hear what happens next. I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with floggings inflicted by human hands. Solomon never experienced that. But there's someone else who did. Do you know the story? Just before Jesus went to the cross, what did he endure? Floggings inflicted by human hands. I want you to see the one to whom the story points. I want you to see that Jesus is the one who is leading and ushering in this kingdom. It's really uh, interesting to me that in ancient Israel, during the time of the kings, the obedience and the fidelity of the king would pretty much dictate the outcomes of the entire nation. Especially if you read First and Second Kings, you'll hear this over and over again. And uh, so-and-so, king of Israel, he reigned for X number of years, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it's a whole slew of terrible things that happened during that time. And king so-and-so uh, ruled for 12 years, and he did what was good in the eyes of the Lord. And then it lays out all the good things that are happening during that time. The fidelity of the king was ultimately dictating the beauty and the shalom of the entire kingdom. But here's the problem. Even the greatest kings, even King Josiah, who's considered to be one of the greatest kings of Israel, all of them had their own failures and faults. And so as a result of that, the kingdom never experienced a full measure of shalom. A debt had to be paid. And so here's the image I want you to see in verse 14. I wonder if the author is thinking of it a little bit like this. Can we see that screen one more time? I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he, Solomon, David, fill in the blank, Justin, fill in your name, does wrong, 
I will punish Jesus with a rod wielded by men and with floggings inflicted with human hands. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. We might become his righteousness. And so that's the good news, friends, that we see in this story is that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the promise that was ushered in 930 years before it occurred. Jesus is the King of Kings. Jesus is the Lord of Lords. And in light of that, we just have one thing to do, to worship him, to sing together how wonderful, how marvelous, and my song will ever be, how marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Well, you've been listening to the latest message in our series through First and Second Samuel, tracing the life of David, the Shadow King. You can find more information about this series and our church's ministry at gatewaycrc.org. I'm Jason McNabb. Please join us next time on the weekly sermon at Gateway, 